Welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here today and uh, literally excited about our text this morning. Um, and I have always considered a privilege to, to, to share the gospel um, here at Sunnybrook. And uh, you might think that's strange, but lately I've actually had a, an incredible opportunity to be in a number of different places and worship uh, in a different context. And so recently I've been in Thailand and then I was in Mexico. And I don't know if you've heard about this other mission field called Missouri. But I was actually there last Sunday preaching in Phillipsburg, Missouri. Everybody know where Phillipsburg is? And there's just a great congregation there, and it was such an incredible thing. They do things there. They're called revivals. I don't know if you've ever heard of these things. Uh, back in my previous life, I, I used to do a lot of them, and it's just been a long time since I've done one and was asked, and it was a real privilege and a, and a pleasure to do that because uh, it's just good to see that God is doing a great work in, in a multitude of places. And I just, I know how hard it is and how desperately many of us are looking for God to do something and to see the, the presence of God and the power of God in lives of people and especially in our lives. And so that's what we're going to be able to experience today from the biblical text. We're going to be in um, Matthew chapters 8 and 9 as we continue through our Jesus the King series looking at the, the gospel of Matthew. We're in that section where we're seeing the kingdom present in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And not just in his words, but also in his actions. And as you've heard us talk about here um, quite regularly, we're really trying to confront an idea in our culture that actually says it is better to be kind and not really express why you're kind or not really kind of teach anything. It's more important for the world, for other people to see kindness in our lives. And I remember thinking, yeah, that is brilliant. Like that is just brilliant. I think it's actually St. Francis of Assisi who was the first one to articulate it like that. And let me tell you a time in my own life where um, I have a neighbor and, um, and I like cutting grass and so it just made the most common sense to me that while I'm mowing my yard, there's this one little section of his and I'll, I'll just mow that little section as well. And, uh, and, and, then, and then maybe my, my neighbor, Ryan, would, would kind of look out onto this part of grass that I've mowed for him and he'd say, wow, that Jim Johnson, he has now clearly expressed to me that Jesus Christ died in my place for my sins. And, and, and look at how that grass is cut so uniformly. I would like to surrender my life to the lordship of Jesus. No, he didn't do that. What he did was, he came out, he looked at the grass, and he said, thank you. I, I bet you he thought that I was kind. And maybe he thought Jim was kind, or maybe he even thought, like, pastors, surprise, surprise, are kind. Maybe he thought, and this might even been a new thing. Wow, Christians really are nice. Look at them. They'll help me mow my grass, which, by the way, is not a bad thing. I'd like, for, I'd like for people to think that Christians are kind. But is that enough? Answer, it's not. And I love how Matthew does these two things, I think intentionally. He's got a sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom Life, chapters 5 through 7. And then the kingdom is present, chapters 8 and 9. Jesus speaks. And then Jesus does. And then he talks. And then he does. And then he talks. And then he does. And that is what the Christian life has been designed by God to look like. And by the way, you don't need to be as articulate or as inarticulate as me. And you don't even need to be, here's the amazing part, you don't even need to be as kind or more kind than I am. 
That's not the point. The point is, is that God through Jesus Christ has entered into our world and is changing our world. You and I, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I never assume everyone in the room is. You and I who are followers of Jesus Christ then engage and are transformed by the word and the ministry of Jesus Christ, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, and then we go out and we share that with others in word and deed. That's what happens. And I've gone my life looking for God and wanting to see him in both word and in deed. I love looking for where God's power exists like it does in the Bible. I mean, we're, we're in that section where these, there are these miracle stories. And I, 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 I've shared with you before, I'd, like, I'd love to see one. I'd love to be a part of one. I'd love to receive one. But even if I never received one, but I could watch him, I think that'd be pretty amazing too. Because if not, especially right now, and I want you to think about this, like our culture tries to maybe explain away a lot of the actions of God in a number of different ways. Some people would, would like call it a coincidence, it's just a coincidence that these things happen. And you probably even looked at your life and said, wow, I wonder, no, it's just a coincidence. Well, I wonder if God, no, it's probably just a coincidence. Okay. Someone else wants to come along and, and describe what you and I experience in God through Christ. And they want to use psychological terms. And psychology, by the way, is real and helpful. I'm not here to bash psychology. And, and, and we, they explain like the circumstances that I have and the feelings that I have and the responses to the feelings that I have. And they've got psych psychological terms and um, expressions and descriptions of how everything is. Others maybe not look at like an individual, but they want to look at like a culture. And so it's a sociological phenomenon. So those in the room who go by the name Christian, who are followers of Jesus Christ, the reason why we act the way that we do and the reason why we explain, the reason why we view life the way that we do is because we're all trying, the whole world is just trying to understand this crazy world that we live in and when we name things and label them and organize them, that's a sociological phenomenon that peoples do to try to order their world. Our framework, not America, but our framework right here, Christian framework, is the Bible, is God, and, and that's our expression, that's our understanding, that's our experience to try to explain this crazy thing called life. But the Bible doesn't really give us, hey, you want some psychological help? Hey, would you like some sociological frameworks? No, the Bible gives us God, and the Bible gives us Jesus, the Bible gives us a framework or a lens of looking at things that, that God came down, in, particularly in Jesus Christ, and is doing something, is transforming something, is acting, and the natural world and the supernatural world is actually responding to him, which is so different than you and I. You and I respond to the world around us, but Jesus, he speaks, and the world, the supernatural world, responds to him. One of, my, one of my favorite sermons that, that just really describes this well is a sermon by the name of A Night in Persia. It was a, a pastor's attempt to try to help his congregation see and experience the Bible. And he wanted to point out just how real and prevalent God is in, even when it, it might not be so apparent. 
a night in Persia. It's the story of Esther. You guys know the book of Esther in the Bible? And one of the most amazing things about the book of Esther, one of the reasons why the book of Esther was, was really called into question as to whether or not it should even be in our Bible is not that it wasn't true, but the word of God never appears in the book of Esther. The name Yahweh or Lord never appears in the book of Esther. And so um, the Jewish community at first looked at this and said, listen, I'm not saying it's not helpful, not saying it's not true. It just, it doesn't read like Isaiah. It's not like any of the Psalms or uh, like Exodus. It's just different. And so maybe we'll put it over here in these other books that tell of our history. I just don't know if it's scripture. And so this pastor decides he's going to play off of this idea. He does it in a first-person narrative, which means he's going to literally act as one of the people in the story. And he finds this obscure person in the story of the book of Esther, and he pretends he's that person. And in fashion, recognizing that God's name is never mentioned, he basically tells the story, and it goes a lot like this. He tells the story, and it just so happens, I mean, isn't it just amazing how this works, that Queen Esther is part of this Jewish family. And by the way, it just so happens that, and he just keeps using this just so happens that. It's just amazing how all these coincidences line up. And it, it just so happens that there's this evil person who just really doesn't like the Jews, and he really hates, and it just so happens that he's related to Esther. And it just so happens that one night King Xerxes just can't sleep, and so it just so happens that he decides to ask somebody to read to him from the stories of his previous years of, uh, of power and in reign. And it just so happens that they tell the story about Esther's relative that this one guy hates. And it just so happens that, and the story just keeps evolving and evolving and evolving it's masterful his closing line is this boy those Jews they sure are lucky is that how you're going to explain it that's how you're going to look at it Noah really understood weather patterns David was, was a marksman. He worked really hard at his craft. I, I don't know, true or not true. David was lucky when he threw the rock. I, I mean, at some point, if you look at the biblical material, ah, this is nuts. Or this is just like Greek mythology. Or this is profoundly true. And again, nothing against... Um, Psychology, nothing against sociology, um, nothing against trying to even understand and wondering if that's a coincidence or not a coincidence. I don't know, I think it's good for us to, by the Spirit of God, to look at all of these things. But what the Bible challenges you and I to come to grips with is do you believe that, as the Bible presents itself, like this is reality? That Jesus is who he says he is? And then do you live in light of that? And the problem is, is that I... If I could be, I like to be honest, I, I stand conflicted sometimes. <laughs> because it's easy for me to go, oh, it's just a coincidence. And, and sometimes I wonder if, like, part of my faith isn't just a psychological response. And it just make, does make me kind of feel better knowing I'm going to heaven and I'm not just going to die and sit in a grave. Any of you comforted by that thought? Okay, one, great. Me and Thea were... Thea, you and I were the only ones, but um, that's the last service I asked, like, who loved Jesus? And one lady went, me, and everybody else, crickets. So it's good to, good to see there's always one in the crowd, Thea. So yes, I mean, it's, it's true that we're comforted, but are we comforted because it's a reality, or are we making this stuff up? And in Matthew's gospel, beginning in chapter 8, this, 
this, this hits. This is how Matthew presents these stories of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ is all about. And they want us to know this reality. And they want us to then take our lives, the Matthew writer, uh, the, the church, wants us to, to build our lives around these truths. That Jesus Christ has power over the natural world. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. And when he, that would be Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose, behold, like out of the blue, like this, we weren't expecting this. These are like seasoned fishermen. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, that's Jesus, was asleep. And they went and they woke him up, saying, save us, Lord. That word save literally means like to save, like um, to save us from heaven, or to save us from hell and to take us to heaven, to save us from an illness, to heal us. This is this word, rescue us. So we sang one of our songs this morning. God, Jesus, rescue us, for we are perishing. Now let's just recognize, like these guys are seasoned fishermen. Like, they're not just overexcited junior high parents who are afraid their kids are going to die. Okay? That's not it. Like, these are seasoned fishermen who are in this boat, who weighed things. Jesus is still sleeping. They weighed things, and they just thought, I don't see us getting out of this. Like, I don't see us getting out of this situation. And I'm going to even assume that the seasoned fishermen, which there were at least four on the boat, are the ones who are saying, yeah, no, you're right. That's a good assessment, Levi. Even though you're a tax collector, we're going to die. And they go to Jesus. Jesus Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So at some level, they have to expect Jesus can do something. I mean, we're in the middle of chapter eight and we'll touch into chapter nine. Jesus is a miracle worker. Jesus, save us. And he said to them, he wakes up obviously, and he says to them, why are you so afraid? It's interesting, storm raging around him. (laughs) And he's like, let me talk to you for a moment. Isn't God like that? Oh, I know, I know there's a storm, but let me first tell you something. Why are you so afraid? And then Jesus does what we're not supposed to do anymore, which is to make a comment on somebody else's situation. Right? We live, a, we live in a society where we want to pretend that we're all the same and that everyone is equal. No one's better than anybody else. Amen? Yeah, it's wrong, but it is amen that that's the culture. No, we're really not the same. We're very different. We're very, 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 very different. And Jesus comments on their, this is the amazing thing, he comments on their faith. And, and he says something very uh, critical of it. Now, by the way, he loves them. He's, he's in the process of training them. But he wants them to understand in this critical moment that what they're doing at that moment, what the, how they are responding to this storm in light of the fact that he is right there, like isn't proper. It's not right. Which is kind of fascinating to me. Like Jesus looks at this. We, we just think, hey, I can do whatever I want if I feel it. I can act any way that I want. I mean, let me explain to you why I acted like that. Because once I explain to you, you can't say anything. And Jesus looks over and says, oh, oh, you of little faith. 
And, and hear me, I know we, we hear that in our culture. It's just like, I can't believe Jesus said that. What happened to the nice Jesus? Well, he, he's always nice. He's always kind. He's always gracious. But his niceness or his gentleness sometimes comes in the form of revealing reality so that you and I can get a better understanding of reality. And if Jesus is right here, and they are right here, and the storm is all around them, to think you're going to die doesn't make sense. Really? (laughs) Wait a second here. You're telling me if I'm right here, and Jesus is right here, and all this crazy stuff is happening around me, me running around like I'm gonna die doesn't make sense, because that's all I know how to do. Right? How many of you know how to run in circles? Right? Scream and yell. Yeah, you got that one right. Thea and I are the only ones that love heaven. How many of you run in circles? Everybody raises their hand, right? But this is true. I mean, I thank you again for the honesty. It's true. That's how I've been conditioned. My mom, particularly, taught me how to worry. Here's how we respond to situations we think the worst things possible and we panic. That was my mom's approach to life. Right? My dad, no, denied everything. That was the other great response, right? So as we're walking along and we're dealing with these three narratives, Jesus here, I mean, are you guys catching the implication? Jesus here, followers of him here, craziness around, like literal, I think I'm going to die craziness. And Jesus turns and says, like how you're acting, like what you're doing, it doesn't make sense. It's small faith, and you shouldn't have small faith. Why? Why shouldn't they have small faith? Because of them? Why shouldn't they have small faith? Because of him. It's because of Jesus. Look at him. Look at him. And so there is, I mean, I love it. I mean, I I think if Matthew might have, the conversation might have gone a lot longer than this, I think. And I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus said, okay, now listen, we're just one year into this, so don't worry about it. Like, no, I don't need you to pack. I don't want you to pack up. I'm a terrible disciple. I need to leave now. No, suck it up. We got two more years before I die, okay? But I just, I want you to remember this, Peter. Like, I want you to remember this, guys. When I am around, when my power is near you, it is much greater than the storm. Again, literal storm. I'm talking about the storms of life. That's our application. This is a literal storm, and Jesus speaks to it, and it goes, yes, sir. Think about that. That is the power of Jesus. He says to storms, stop. Again, we only know how to respond to them. Interestingly enough, um, my wife and I have lived, or I particularly have lived, in the two places in Canada where tornadoes happen. Then, when I felt like I needed to go to college, I moved to Joplin, Missouri, Then I decided to go to graduate school in Tornado Valley, Illinois. After graduating, moved back to Joplin, Missouri. And then to go, I can't do this anymore, moved to Oklahoma, right? (laughs) And truly, all my wife and I know how to do is to prepare for the storm, right? And when, the last one I remember, um, the sirens are going off, and so it's, it's like bad. It was early, early in the morning. That's the last one I remember. And I just remember, we gotta go to David and Denise's house. And we just got in our car, and we took off. It's like, that's all we know how to do. 
Like at no point did I just walk out of the, hey, Andrea, I got this. (laughs) Peace be still. No, no, no. I really don't. I don't have that power. Okay, I don't have that power. But I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this. Either this is some creepy metaphor or this is actually true. And this is the Jesus we worship. Tornado about to hit Joplin, Missouri, May 22nd. Jesus stands on the edge of town and goes, oh, I got this. Stop it. Crazy. Powerful. Builds faith in us. Not only does he have power over that world, but he has power in the supernatural world. Again, the one that we question, the one that we really have a hard time imagining or believing. Um, These men, as I read this story, probably sounds more like some kind of mental illness. But I I believe in a supernatural world. I believe in angels. I believe in I believe in God, right? Which no surprise. So I mean, Christians. Oh, sure, I believe in God. I just don't believe in angels. Oh, yeah. Like that's the hard one to believe in. I mean, seriously, think about it. If there is a God, everything else could be possible. Everything else could be possible. Jesus now is going to engage the supernatural world. And when he came to the other side, this is verse 28. And when he came to the other side of, this is the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes, which would be more of a Gentile, possibly Greek area, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, it's also good for you to understand that when you look at this uh, text along with its parallel, it's got, this is also told in Mark's gospel, Mark 5, as well as Luke 8. And when you read those stories, it just has one demon-possessed man. Matthew decides to focus, I believe there were two. And I believe Mark and Luke both focus on one. I think Matthew recognizes that there were two there. And one of the reasons why Matthew consistently draws uh, attention more to the group has to do with that in Jewish culture, which would be Matthew's gospel more than the other three gospels. Matthew draws on this, that when two speak, the testimony or the witness is true. This is true. Two demon-possessed men meet him coming out of the tombs. And behold, verse 29, the second time we've seen that. And behold, they cried out, What have you come to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They they recognize who he is, right? In, in, In humanity, the disciples almost have to wait till Jesus acts. Somehow, supernaturally, Jesus comes and they know, ah, there's something radically different about him. Have you come here to torment us before the time when you're going to set everything right, when everything in rebellion, which is the demonic world, okay, when everything is in rebellion against God, when all of a sudden God comes, his kingdom is both being established and then ultimately established, everything that is in rebellion against him is dealt with. So these demons are enjoying the fact that they are tormenting, the fact that they are tearing down, the fact that they are being destructive. They're enjoying that. They know the time will come and Jesus comes and the demons just ask, you come here to torment us until the time. Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them and the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into that herd of pigs. And so he said to them, I mean, Appears Jesus is gracious to demons. Hmm. So he said to them, go. And by the way, when Jesus says go, you go. Go. 
And so they came out and they went into the pigs and then behold, the whole herd rushed down a steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. When I had a chance to go um, to the Holy Land and to see the Sea of Galilee, first of all, uh, being from Canada, I was absolutely blown away by how small everything was because when you're on lakes there, like even the lakes that I'm, I'm used to, not just the big, you know, the great lakes, but even some, I mean, the, the lakes are huge, but the Sea of Galilee is not very big. And we had a chance to leave over kind of where um, Tiberius is. We went up to Capernaum. We saw where the Sermon on the Mount was. And we went on a car around. And, and literally, this is the area that Jesus was on. And it was so amazing. Oh, by the way, this is the region of the Gadarenes. Ah, oh, that's pretty cool. I, uh, here's what I did. I looked that way and I said, huh, is there a, like a real steep cliff right here? And our Jewish guide goes, yeah, how'd you know? Matthew 8. <laughs> Literally right there. Now, it's, if you walk, it's got like a roped off area because there are landmines. I'm not assuming they were there in Jesus' day, but there are landmines right there. And then you can just look over and there's this huge steep cliff that goes down into the Sea of Galilee. That was amazing. Jesus says, go. They get in the pigs. They, they do what demons do. Tormenting, destroying, dying. They had their way. And then the herdsmen, who most likely weren't Jewish because Jewish people don't herd pigs, the herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the people came out of the city to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they said, thank you so much for freeing these men. We're really, really grateful. We recognize you as the future Messiah, and we would like to follow you for the rest of our lives. They begged him to leave their region. We liked it better when there were two guys here and we knew just to put a fence around it. We liked it better with the, there are mines here, don't go into that area, that's dangerous. You're freaking us out. Like you're um, uncontrollable. (laughs) You have no idea. And they tell them to go away. How many of you are absolutely shocked when you hear from maybe a friend or, or somebody that you know, a professor, or you watch on the news and you hear like this very angry, we don't like Christians, we don't like Jesus, and I mean like we really don't like him. How many of you are going, what is your problem, dude? How many of you are just absolutely blown away by that, right? I just don't understand why these people are acting like this, which is kind of fascinating to me. Because recently, when I was in Thailand, I was talking to some people who were from China, and the Chinese government totally believed that Christianity is dangerous and it could undo their nation. I said, oh, you gotta come to America. They think it's nothing over there. Like, if you come to America, it's like, oh yeah, no, 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 you don't understand. If you just give them some money <laughs> and tell them God did it, and if you just kind of, you know, give them some activities to kind of keep themselves busy, these Christians are totally controllable. The Bible actually isn't that shocked at all when people rise up in anger and when people tell Jesus to go away. That's actually like a normal response. There are two normal responses to Jesus. Get out of here. You are dangerous and you are just, oh, you are a problem to society. And wow, you are amazing. I'm ready to sell everything I have and give it to you and follow you. 
Those are two, I would say, normal responses to calming of storms and sending uh, demons into pigs. Like that would, those would both make sense. But, ah, you know what? I think I might try to go to church five weeks in a row. You know what I, you know what I think I might do? I might, I might try to become a nicer person. Mow my friend's yard, get a WWJD bracelet. Like that response, that, that response doesn't make sense in light of Matthew 8 and 9, does it? Like I really do. I can, I, I'm beginning, I didn't for a long time. For a long time, I would watch the news or I would talk with people and I just literally go, I have no idea what your problem is. And I realized, oh, I, I think one of the reasons why I have no idea is I'm being domesticated by my culture. I'm the one that maybe believes more than I realize that it is a psychological or sociological phenomenon. Man, maybe this is just a coincidence. Well, no, that can't. I mean, anybody know what I'm talking about? Jesus stirs up profound fear. They marvel at him when they're the disciples in the boat. They beg him to go away. Please go away. And this last encounter, I, I think, and maybe with the stringing together of the word behold, um, really kind of gets to the point at what this section is. It's hard to draw lines in here. We had to do it in terms of us, you know, kind of carving up the Matthew material. And so we saw these three units going together, but it's, it's hard to do in Matthew's gospel. The last one I'll look at is in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And it's not Jesus' power over nature, although he is about to do like a healing. Um, it's not about Jesus' power over demons. It's literally about his prerogative over sin. And getting into the boat, he crossed over again and came to his own city, so Capernaum. And behold, that's the third time that's appeared, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, so that's a common theme too. When Jesus saw, instead of going, wow, you should have seen my disciples a little while ago. They had no faith. You guys are impressive. It's, that's pretty common. To a centurion, I haven't seen faith like this in Israel. To a Syrophoenician, i.e. a Gentile woman, I have not seen faith like this in Israel. You, this is great faith to his disciples. What's wrong with you people? Right? This is kind of how the gospels go. I think a lot of it is because like, the more we hang out with Jesus, the more we just become inoculated instead of amazed by Jesus. So he says to the paralytic after seeing their faith, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Thanks. That's really not why I came. I don't know if you've noticed, I can't walk. Jesus knows. He's aware of the entire situation. And, and much like the storm and him sleeping is to teach the disciples something, not just that, but that. And just like with these men, he cares about these men, but he's also trying to get to these people to understand who he is. Jesus is doing a whole lot more, and he gets to the heart of the matter, the heart of his own ministry. Take heart, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes, that would be the party of the Pharisees, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Literally, this man is, is, is taking God from this high place and putting him on a low place. He's blaspheming. He's making little of God. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think such evil in your hearts? Like, I know that we have different categories for evil, but the category for evil that is listed here is to not recognize Jesus as God. When Jesus is doing work, when Jesus is doing miraculous, 
And to not recognize that as God, to not recognize that as divine, like that's evil. Jesus sees the evil in their hearts, the fact that they will not recognize who he is. Why do you think such evil in your hearts? And then he's, I love this. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or by the way, telling a storm to stop, or by the way, telling demons to come out? Like, which is easier, those things, or to say, rise and walk? Answer, it is always easier to say stuff that cannot be measured. Always easier. To prove, to verify, and so he says, Verse six, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. This is a story that in Mark and in Luke is where they tear apart the ceiling and they lower them down. It's the same story. Jesus is amazed at their faith. He, he, he really gets at the point. I don't know if he did this, but hey, watch this. Talking to his disciples, watch this. These religious people who think they know who God is, I'm gonna make them really upset by exposing the fact that I am him, that I am God, that God the Father and I are one. They they won't be able to handle this. So the man arises and he goes home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. It's interesting, we've got marveling, we've got begging, and we've got fear. Why? Because when you're able to say these things and then do these things, again, like I have no idea how to handle you. I have no idea what to do with you. It's a, it's a little bit like, I, I think I wanna follow you. I, I think I see how that's gonna work, but I don't know where that's gonna go. And I, I, I like things that are much more simple and I'm able to organize them, Right? How many of you like things like in their place and you want to know like where you're going and what is going to happen? And you want to accept Jesus Christ so that you can get wet, come to church, join a life group. If we have time, maybe go on a mission trip as long as it's not too expensive and as long as it's in a really, really safe place, right? I mean, think about how we organize these things. We are the gods of, or we we want to, the God of safety, please rain down upon us. Please, 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 please. I don't want to marvel. I don't want to beg you. I don't want to be afraid. Why are you like this? Because the world is absolutely broken. It is absolutely messed up. And what is needed is for the divine creator who in light of the fall has provided a way of redemption, his son Jesus Christ, and is in the process of restoration, think fixer-upper, when he goes in, what is his favorite day? What's Chip's favorite day? Demo day. We gotta fix this. By how? Sledgehammers? We're gonna smash this place up. Right? And how many of you, when it's like that house, you go, that looks like fun, right? Think about it. So God comes in and says, this is what I'm going to do. This is what happens when I engage a broken, demonic, messed up, fearful world. So then what do we do with this? Well, here's what we're supposed to do with this. It really goes back to the encounter that the disciples had in the boat. So 
if we are here and Jesus is here and the storms are there, and all of a sudden we, we realize, wow, Jesus has taken care of our sin problem, which then provides us peace with God. We, we think about the power that Jesus has in every realm of life, and then all of a sudden it seems a little just out of place to go, I really can't fix that relationship. Like, I don't know if I can forgive my friend for what they did to me. Like, I don't know if I can overcome what's happening in my life. How many of you look at the church today or even like the church in this room and go, now there are empowered people who recognize the presence of God and do great things. I mean, we sang a song, what can stand against us? Nothing, what can, nothing can stand against us. But I'm scared to death that I could get hurt. I'm scared to death and so that's how I, why I give the way that I do. I'm scared to death and that's why I handle relationships the way that I do. Like I numb the pain. Um, I hold myself back. Why? Because I just can't do it. I'm gonna say this as nicely and, and I've said it to myself a million times. Oh, you of little faith. Like do you not recognize who Jesus is? Do you not see him in his fullness and his splendor? Do you not know that he has died? I, I, get, I get this a lot. I know that God has forgiven me. I just can't, I, don't, I just can't believe it. Really? Like the same one that calmed the storm, the same one that cast up, you can't believe he could somehow, yeah, I don't get that. Think about if we really engaged these stories, these real stories, the way that we should, how that would empower our lives. Now, by the way, I'm not wanting to go in some crazy health, wealth gospel. No, I'll fight that till the day I die. So I'm not, and you can have whatever you want, the best life now. All that junk, theological, mm, I want to say things, but that is nuts, okay? It's just not biblical. So I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about you and I for the purposes of God relational with each other and engaging this world like the one that calmed that storm, he's the one in us. The one that cast out those demons, he's the one holding my marriage together. The one that actually had that man like rise and walk, he is the one that is teaching me to forgive because I have been forgiven. That's the life that I live. That, by the way, is the best life ever because it is a Jesus-empowered life. Do you want that life? Thank you. <laughs> Need to put that in the bulletin next time. There will be a question at the end of this sermon. Please respond with yes. Listen, I'm not some youth pastor who wants us all to yell it. I just want you to think, I'm gonna ask you one more time, that kind of life, victory in all areas as God directs and empowers, do you want that life? Not as badly as God wants it for you. He's offered it to you. Take it. Take it.